This is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and we are here with the 50th episode of the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast. I can hardly believe that I've done 50 episodes, and I've been recording this podcast for two years. It has been a lot of fun. There have been changes. I've changed the format up somewhat. We've had guests. We've had questions. There's just been so much that's happened, and I've gone from recording every two weeks to just recently starting to record every week, so I hope that you're enjoying that. I don't have a lot of fanfare or special stuff going on for the 50th episode because part of me can hardly believe that we're here, but I did want to acknowledge it. We had a great guest last week. If you missed that, you need to go back and listen to Rachel talk about why movement is so important for development for your baby and how you can integrate movement and just little developmental games into your newborn and your young baby's routine and how that can be helpful for both mamas and babies. It sounds a little bit overwhelming, but it's really fascinating what she talked about. And she also talks about ways to make it easy and even helpful for us. So check that episode out if you missed that. That episode came right in the middle of a series of questions that I've been going through because I get so many questions from all of you, and I wanted to take some time to answer the collections of questions that I've gotten. So this week, we're going to go ahead and resume the Q&A session that we were doing. These questions are all mostly pregnancy and birth questions that I've gotten because that tends to be what I get the most. Though if you have baby questions, you can feel free to let me know that you want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast because we do baby stuff too. But this week we're going to continue in that birth vein and we're going to talk about care providers and birth settings, for lack of a better word. But these are all questions that I've gotten that relate to choosing a care provider or what to do to work with your care provider or how to handle a chosen birth setting. It's kind of an appropriate time to do this podcast because I'm recording this right on the heels of the United Kingdom changing their recommendations for pregnant women, at least pregnant women who are not first-time moms. Their recommendation that first-time moms birth in the hospital still stands about the same, but they're recommending that healthy, low-risk moms who are having their second or subsequent baby consider giving birth in a birthing center or at home with midwives, and that's just making waves right now. I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, a little video or an article about it. I've seen so many. I'll just pick one and link to it in case you haven't heard about that. But women are really thinking about where is the best place to give birth. And as we can see by what's going on in the UK, there are other people who are thinking about what's the best place to give birth. And maybe that might not be the hospital or who's the best care provider to oversee my healthy pregnancy. And I liked what one of the moms said in an interview that I watched about this, that she said there was no lack of support for me. She had chosen to have her baby in a birthing center. And in reality, midwives, in general, there are exceptions just like there are exceptions. I mean, there are crummy doctors, and so you're going to have some crummy midwives here and there. But in general, midwives are very educated. They're good at what they do. They've attended a lot of births just like an obstetrician. They understand how to handle a situation. And one big benefit about midwives is 
they don't get in there and put their hands and their needles and their monitoring apparatus on you right away. They tend to know when to sit on their hands and when you need more active support or when you need direct intervention. So it's just something to consider. And it's not saying that you have to have a home birth or that I think home birth is best, though obviously if you've read my birth stories, which are available on my website, you know that that's the choice that I've made for my babies and for my pregnancies. But midwives have a lot to offer, and they're very competent. Competent providers who also believe in empowering their clients. Again, there are always exceptions to the rule, just like there are OBs who are exception to the rule of OBs tend to be more interventative and don't take a lot of time with their clients. But, you know, midwives really know their stuff. And they tend to spend more time with you during your pregnancy, too, rather than a quick, brisk 10 to 15 minute visit, if even that. You might see your midwife for an hour or more. But I don't want this to become an an episode comparing and contrasting doctors and midwives or home birth and hospital birth. I really want to dig into the questions, but I'm pretty sure that this is going to be on the forefront of a lot of minds because this is a huge recommendation coming out of the UK and the NHS saying that women should consider having a home birth. So I wanted to acknowledge it, and it did fit in with the subject matter. With that, we can jump right on into the questions These are questions, I get these kind of questions from my students very frequently, and I think they're great questions. And as you'll tell by the way I answered, I picked, for our intro today, I picked dialoguing in. And I know that sounds kind of boring and maybe not pregnancy, birth, or baby related, but the reality is, is it's very important that you be able to dialogue. And I like that word because it implies a level of maturity and professionalism. And when you talk to your care provider, you want to bring maturity and professionalism and you expect that they will bring maturity and professionalism because in reality, even if you're not an obstetrician or a midwife yourself, you are a peer for your care provider. You're both adults making adult decisions and you're in a consultation relationship. That means You're asking them for their expert advice. They're giving it to you, and then you're weighing that to make your decisions. It's not a parent-child relationship or a master-slave relationship where they're telling you that you need to go do this and you know that you better go do it. It is a dialogue relationship, a mature adult relationship, a peer relationship. And so that's why I picked dialoguing, and you're going to hear that as a common theme throughout what we talk about when we go over the questions today. With that, let's jump right into them. Okay, the first question that I got says, After reading some great books and testimonials, I'm convinced I want a natural at-home childbirth for my future child or children. However, I do have some questions, and I'm sure I'll have lots more. But two have been weighing on my mind. If my state doesn't allow certified midwives to attend at-home births, what are my options? And how can I find a midwife that will attend me? This is a great question to start off with, especially in the United States. There can be confusion over what constitutes a midwife or what kind of midwives are there. And there are some states that are pretty hostile to midwives, so that's important to acknowledge too. If you live somewhere like the UK, you can use a midwife who works through the NHS or there are independent midwives. And it's the same in many other countries that have 
a centralized healthcare system. For instance, in Australia, you can go to a clinic that's provided for you as one of your benefits for being pregnant, and there there are also independent midwives. So, and I don't know all of the nuances in those situations, but regulations differ, and sometimes regulation doesn't equal a great thing. And I'll cover a little bit about that in just a second here because we're going to talk about midwives in the United States. So I wanted to acknowledge midwives in other countries who are often, they often have hospital privileges in other countries and things are a little bit, a little bit easier for midwives in those countries in some ways because they are seen more as peers. They are seen as more valid, whereas in the United States, they're not so much. And in some countries like New Zealand, they attend the majority of babies' births. So there's a different outlook on midwives, and there are midwives who are paid for with the state-run health insurance and medical programs, and many of them also have independent midwives, and there are some differences there. Now, in the United States, things are very different because there's not really any centrally state-run medical system, and this isn't a political podcast, so we're not going to debate the pros or cons of that. But what what has happened here is there are different types of midwives and they're they're basically islands unto themselves. So the midwife that is considered a quote-unquote professional and is recognized by the medical system or many people in the medical system is the certified nurse midwife. And her credentialing is relatively similar to a European midwife or a midwife elsewhere in that she's she's become a nurse first and she's gone to college to study midwifery and completed a master's program in midwifery. She could have gone to college to study um to study nursing. And then she becomes a certified nurse midwife. And also a woman who has graduated from college in another area of study but decides she wants to become a midwife can become a certified midwife. They don't have the nurse, but she still goes through a master's program in midwifery and has to go through certain courses to satisfy that, attend a certain number of births. She just didn't come through it by being a nurse first. So that credential, the certified nurse midwife, and to a lesser extent the certified midwife, is seen as the official thing and the real deal by much of the medical profession in the United States. These midwives usually work in a hospital setting. They generally can get delivery privileges at hospitals. Many of them work in a practice with obstetricians. Some of them may attend birth center births or home births, but they are rarer than those who work in hospitals. So if you have a midwife attend you at the hospital in the United States, it is most likely a certified nurse midwife. And a few states recognize the credential of a certified, excuse me, a certified midwife. There are other types of midwives. There is a certified professional midwife or a CPM as as opposed to a CNM or a CM. CPMs are a certified professional midwife and they may have gone through an official college program. Or they may have gone through what's called the apprenticeship path. 
if they've gone through the apprenticeship path, they could have no college education. They could have a college education in a totally unrelated degree. They could have some college education. But they all have to have studied to be able to sit and pass the exam to become a CPM. And if they follow the apprentice path, they have other requirements that they have to fulfill, such as a portfolio review, which is an extensive review of all of the births that they've attended and their behavior as a midwifery apprentice and all of that sort of thing. And th those midwives sit for what's called the NARM exam, N-A-R-M, to get their CPM credential. And they can either get that by going through a school that's been accredited for the NARM exam. Those are MEEC accredited schools, M-E-A-C. Or they can go through the portfolio review process, which is actually called the PEP, Portfolio Evaluation Process. And right now, that's still a valid route of study. And for instance, a midwife who's been, you know, a granny midwife who's been practicing for decades before there was such thing as a midwifery school, that might be an option that she might choose. Many apprentices today choose to go through some sort of program, whether it be a traditional step foot on campus program or whether it be a distance learning program. Even if they're going to go with the apprenticeship program, they still generally choose a structured program to go through and everybody has to sit for that exam now c cpms or yes cpms certified professional midwives are recognized as being very professional and competent midwives by many consumers and in some areas, obstetricians respect them, but it would be very rare to find one who has privileges at, at the hospital. Now, some communities are going to be more, more familiar with them and more friendly to them. So these midwives usually have a home birth practice or a birth center or both. And some communities are very hostile to them. So if the woman was to transfer with a mom who needed to transfer to the hospital, it would, it would be dicier. She wouldn't be very respected. She may even be brushed off. She may be blamed, even if this was a really routine and under control transfer, which sometimes happens. Um, and in other communities, they're very friendly. So if your CPM transferred with you in that community, she would be listened to. Her records would be looked at. Uh, the doctor would ask her opinion on what's going on. She would be able to stay with you during the transfer and as you finished your labor there or if it was found that a cesarean was needed or something during the surgery or during your course of labor. So that really depends on a community basis. Um, in some states, at midwives attending home births is illegal, which means there's really not anything that governs it. In other states, it's illegal, which means that those midwives who attend births do so under the radar, so to speak. They do it at the risk of being arrested and thrown in jail for helping a mom through her birthing time. And then there are ones where midwives are licensed. Before we walk into licensing, there's one final type of midwife, which is called a direct entry midwife. Usually these midwives haven't just hung out their shingle because they read one book and decided they wanted to be a midwife. Usually they've apprenticed extensively with another midwife, and they may have gone through study. But for whatever reason, they've decided they don't want to be a CPM or a CNM. And there are reasons why women might decide 
to opt out of that system, some of which I will touch on when I touch on licensing. But a direct entry midwife doesn't mean an incompetent midwife. It could mean an incompetent midwife, just like a CNM or a CPM could be incompetent. A doctor who's board certified could be found to be incompetent. It happens. And that's why no matter who you choose, you should ask for references Think about how do I feel with this person? How does she make me feel? Do I feel comfortable or uncomfortable? Does she seem competent? Is she on the same page with me? And we're going to talk more about this because I have a question about what to ask when you're interviewing a care provider. But what I'm saying is you need to do your homework no matter who your care provider is, regardless of if you choose to see your family practice doctor or your obstetrician or a maternal fetal medicine doctor or a CPM or a CNM or a D. E-M, which is a direct entry midwife. There are so many things going on. But anyways, getting back around to the question, which was talking about midwives being illegal or legal, some states license midwives, which means that the midwife, there are regulations for the state and they set out who can be called the midwife in that state and how she can run her practice in that state. And most of the states that license midwives, they license CNMs, and many of them also license CPMs, a certified professional midwife. Now, what comes up when you are practicing under one of these names or when your midwife is practicing under one of these names or she is uh, licensed under the state is that there's certain regulatory guidelines which may or may not be evidence-based. At the time that I'm recording this, uh, Arizona is a good example of a state that's not really evidence-based or rational in the way that it regulates midwives. It requires, for instance, that midwives do regular vaginal exams, and if the midwife's client refuses vaginal exams during labor, the midwife is technically supposed to transfer her client to the care of an obstetrician for refusing vaginal exams, which are not evidence-based as part of a woman's birthing. They really don't make any difference. They've shown no proven benefit, and they're possibly harmful. And you've probably heard me go on about that in another podcast. But anyways, there may be regulations like that which really don't make sense. A lot of moms could safely have a VBAC at home. Excuse me, at home, especially if she's had a previous vaginal birth and then a cesarean in between. There are ways to evaluate risk, yet most midwives who are licensed by the state in most states that do licensing are not supposed to attend mothers at home who are planning a VBAC. If they do so, they risk losing their license or they risk prosecution, even if the mom has a great birth with no complications. And so that gets really muddy. It gets really political. And it's the same thing, the same constraints that may be on a doctor, for instance, who's very friendly to VBAC but has licensing privileges and your insurance says you need to go to this specific hospital which doesn't allow VBACs. So even if the doctor's comfortable attending you in a VBAC in a hospital situation, that hospital has said no. So his hands are tied. It's the same thing for a midwife under regulations either from her title or her license. And that is why some midwives choose to fly under the radar. Again, I'm not saying choose a midwife without a credential or without a license. I'm saying do your homework and also realize that it may not be that 
the midwife is being irresponsible or rebellious or negligent. She may have conscious choices for not making that decision to have a license. And this is, I suspect this might be the same reason why you have independent midwives in countries that, uh, that have, uh, midwives as part of the national health care system. There may be independent midwives because there are regulations. I said that I would get back around to that, and I want to. So always find out what your midwife's credential is and find out why her credential is that. If we go back to the question that I started talking about 15 minutes ago now, this mom said her state doesn't allow certified midwives, so I'm guessing no CPMs to attend home births. So what are her options? And your main option is to find a birth center that a nurse midwife can attend or choose to have a nurse midwife in the hospital, or you may be able to find a midwife who's willing to fly under the radar. I could do an entire episode, I guess, on how one might go about finding one of those midwives, but the best thing to do is probably to ask around and find out because understandably, many of them don't advertise heavily. After all, advertising heavily could end up with them going to jail, even if they've never done anything wrong, even if they're just, they are a skilled midwife, even if all of their birth outcomes have always been good, even if they're competent and know exactly when they should transport and why they should transport and do it when they need to do it. They still face arrest because they're technically breaking the law by choosing to be a midwife in an area where the state has said you can't be a midwife. They just feel that attending women in their birthing time is a higher calling. So I would ask around. I would do your research. You want to know that any any woman who says that she's a midwife is worth her salt and is skilled. And I would also be an educated consumer. I talk about this a lot to the students in my mama baby birthing classes. Many things that we take for granted or that we assume are good for mamas and babies because that's what they do in the hospital may not actually be the evidence-based way to handle the situation. And not always, again, there are always exceptions, but as a general rule, women who choose to home birth or have a birth center birth are more educated, they're better nourished, their bodies are more prepared for birthing because a midwife takes a perspective of educating and empowering the parents that this is their birth, this is their experience. So I would say if midwives are not allowed in your state, there are probably some who are flying under the radar. You're just going to have to do your research to find them. Uh, and that may not be easy, it may not be obvious, but when you do find them, definitely do your research into them and do your research. Know what you want, know your comfort levels, know what you feel good about. And with that, we can segue into the next question, which are, what are the most important questions to be asking your care provider through pregnancy or while interviewing possible care providers? So when you're interviewing a care provider, you want to ask things like, what's your cesarean rate? What's your episiotomy rate? Those are the questions that you expect or your care provider expects you to ask. And I have two lists on naturalbirthandbabycare.com, which I will link to in the show notes. One of them is tailored towards interviewing a midwife and the other is tailored towards interviewing an obstetrician. But both of them have all of those standard questions that you may want to ask. 
And you probably want to ask, what's your education? And what path, you know, what brought you to midwifery or what brought you to obstetrics? How many babies have you caught? That sort of thing. And many midwives, I don't know about obstetricians, but many midwives will actually give you a sheet that has their statistics that tells you how many babies they've caught, how many transports they've done, how many cesareans there have been in their practice and that sort of thing. And that can be really informative. You may also want to ask for references. Midwives are usually happy to give you references past clients. Again, I don't know if obstetricians do this. It it might take an obstetrician off guard for you to ask because it's pretty much assumed that if an obstetrician hangs his shingle out, he knows what he's doing. There's kind of a double standard there because if a midwife hangs her shingle out, somebody says, oh, she read one book and she thinks she can be a midwife now. But if a doctor does, oh, you know, he went through these years of medical school and he thinks he can be an obstetrician where he worked in a in an area where he saw at-risk women and this, that, and the other but didn't really see anything about real normal birth. That argument could be turned around, but nobody ever does. But you want to think about those things. Now, going above and beyond the obvious questions, which will be on that list, what I would say you really want to do when you're interviewing a care provider is give them questions that make them think, that challenge them. I encourage my students to use questions like, when I'm in the pushing phase of labor, what will you be doing? Or, you know, early in my birthing time, what will you be doing? Or when your client is early in her labor, what are you usually doing? Ask them to describe what they're doing. You can do this with a doctor or a midwife, and a doctor might say early on, I'm not there. Um, But, you know, if in the midst of pushing the baby out, you know, if they're saying what they're doing or postpartum when, you know, right after my baby has been born, what happens when you're the doctor or when you're the midwife? Do your research, you, speaking to you, gentle mother, Do your research so that you know what you would like. For instance, you want to bring your baby up to your chest. You want hands off. You want everybody to be quiet so that you can have those first few moments so that the safety that is created by the hormonal orchestra of birth is allowed to take place. You don't want a shot of Pitocin. You don't want them pulling on the cord. You don't want them pumping at your uterus trying to jerk things out. You want them to let things happen the way that they're supposed to happen. And if you're curious about everything I just talked about, go back to the podcast episode about unhindered birth. It's really a goodie. The title wasn't, maybe maybe the title wasn't very attractive because it didn't get too many downloads, but it's actually a super important episode. So go back and listen to it. But anyways, you know, you need to know what you want or what your ideal is. Any of us mature adult women understand that sometimes that may not happen. Sometimes something may come up, but you can assume that nothing is going to come up. And so what is your ideal birth scenario in that case? And of course, you're an intelligent, mature adult woman. And if something comes up, they can explain it to you even in just a few minutes, even in just a few seconds, and you can make the right decision in that moment, but you should prepare and plan for your ideal birth situation, which for most of you is going to be a natural physiological birth where birth is allowed to happen the way that it's supposed to happen. Anyways, enough of that tangent. And then know what you want during pregnancy, you know, 
What kind of testing do you do? What kind of testing do you as a mother want? If you're not real familiar with a lot of the testing, I've been doing a, an entire series which you might be interested in. I've got the second trimester guide and the third trimester guide out, and they're actually video. But if you wanted to listen to the guides on audio, I also make that available. But it, each one is about two hours long. It's a total walkthrough of the second trimester and the third trimester, and I'm hoping to finish up the first trimester this week. I kind of worked from the middle up, and then now I've gone back. But I talk a lot about what to expect at prenatal appointments in those guides, and I'll link to them. But you can just go to naturalbirthandbabycare.com slash shop and get those. They're really inexpensive because I want them to be accessible to all moms. Uh, but I put a lot of work into them because there are a lot of routine questions that moms have. And understanding what to expect at your prenatal appointments or what your care provider may do or may offer and why can help you make decisions on if you want that and can help you dialogue with a potential care provider on if something is routine or not in their practice, depending on if you do or do not want that routine procedure. And that might, it depends probably based on you and what your goals are for your pregnancy. So again, it's good to be educated when you interview. It's good to ask probing questions that make your care provider think. Before we move on to the next question, and, and, and that's throughout your entire pregnancy, you can ask questions like that. And other questions are, how can I keep myself healthy? What should I be eating? You want a care provider who knows that sort of thing. And to be honest, it's more likely to be a midwife than a doctor or even a childbirth educator like me because a lot of doctors haven't had training in nutrition. But you want to ask them how you can take care of you and your baby. You don't want them to say, oh, you know, just come to your prenatal appointments and you'll be fine. You want to be an intelligent person. Uh, as Jan Tritton, the editor of Midwifery Today, said, prenatal care is what happens between prenatal appointments. So you want somebody who acknowledges your uh, responsibility and empowerment and all of that good stuff in that process. But anyways, one final idea, and then we'll try and jump into a couple more questions before we get too late into the podcast episode. But one final idea is that if you are going to choose a midwife, you might ask her if she's got videos from her clients. Many midwives do, and this can be a really good way to see how she interacts with different clients and decide if you like that or not. You may find that when you're watching her in several videos and if she behaves in a typical manner in each one that doesn't seem to connect with you, she might not be the right midwife. Now, I, I say several videos is good because some moms are going to want a midwife to be more hands-on. And some moms are going to want a midwife to be more hands-off. And depending on where you are and where you're coming from has a lot of influence on that. So a, a good midwife is a midwife who's adaptable. And she's able to jump in when she's needed and she's able to sit on her hands or knit or draw or something when, when you just want her to be there observing. And a good midwife can do a whole lot with her eyes, even if her hands are not busy. So, and you may be tempted to watch the mom in the birth videos and that may be a lot of what you see in the video but pay attention to the midwife too and that can be a good way to get to know her and her style okay this one is two concerns that I have this mom is in Canada she's worried about not having my wishes respected during labor and birth in the early postpartum I'm in a small community and there are limited 
opportunities for me to change caregivers. Midwifery is not available in our community, and we have high rates of intervention, which tends to result in low breastfeeding rates. So what can I do to, you know, tips or guidelines for that? This is another common question that I get. Moms feel like their choices are really limited. And a lot of moms, you know, for instance, unassisted birth is a choice that a lot of moms have. But it's not a choice that many moms are going to make. And what I would recommend if you're in this situation is, first of all, be super educated. I've talked about that over and over again. But I, I don't think that it completely ends at education. So you've heard me say education, education, get the knowledge, get the knowledge throughout this entire podcast episode. And you certainly need that. But especially if you are feeling compelled or if you've chosen to birth in a hospital situation where you know that having a natural and intervention-free birth may in fact be an uphill battle, you want to have the knowledge with you. You may choose to have somebody like a doula who can help advocate or run interference for you she can't make your decisions for you but she can help kind of be a buffer and maybe uh can delay some things or um waylay some things before they get to you and that that may be something to consider but another thing to consider is you be really prepared for birth and when I say you I would say you and your birth partner and your doula if you choose to have one But your birth partner can really be a critical help in this. First of all, he, and I'm going to say he because I'm assuming it's you, dad, but it could be your mom or your sister or whoever. But I'll say he. You, dad, need to also have this knowledge because you need to form this conviction. You don't want to end up being the dad who the doctor turns to and threatens and bullies and says, oh, your wife and baby are going to die. And so you essentially turn around and put the pressure on on your wife when in reality that wasn't the situation at all because in reality if it's a life-threatening situation there's no need to bully everybody pretty much knows it um there's just you know there's no need to bully and so if scare tactics like that are being used it may be a convenience thing for the doctor it may be an uh, an unwillingness to work with things such as working with a position change or going outside of a protocol say letting a mom get up and walk instead of forcing her to stay in bed an unwillingness to try an alternative like that and instead bullying tactics are used and you don't want to fall for those any more than mama wants to fall for those so make sure that you know your stuff make sure that you're aware and and What I just said, I touched on the other component of what you, again speaking to you, Mama, and your birthing partner, be that daddy or your mama or whomever, but I touched on the other thing you need, and that's skills, resources, to put it in daddy terms, a toolbox for what to do during your birthing time. You need to be prepared, and this is why I teach birthing classes, because It is so important to be prepared for birth, not just to have the head knowledge, but for you, mom, to understand your body. And it's really good if dad, you can understand her body too. You understand your breathing. You understand the pelvis. You understand how your pelvis changes throughout pregnancy. You understand how your pelvis changes during birth. You understand what your baby is doing because even if it seems like something's not changing 
on the outside externally or even dilation internally, there could be something going on with that baby. Baby is doing something that nobody can see. I did a podcast episode about that too called Baby's Experience of Birth, which would be really beneficial to go back and listen to if you haven't listened to it. But essentially, you want to be prepared with skills to give birth. Many doctors and nurses are used to seeing women who want a natural birth but who are not at all prepared for it. The birth can be intense. It doesn't have to be painful, I don't think. For some women, they may experience pain. But I don't think that it has to be painful. I don't think, I certainly don't think that it has to be agonizing or anything. Though it can be challenging for women, and many women find it intense, and it takes some time and some skills to integrate. Be those skills something that you learn, say, in my birthing class or in a hypnobirthing technique or something. Women use skills to work with their birthing time, and that's a good thing. Uh, and But doctors and nurses often don't see women in that situation. They see women who want a natural birth and who may have the knowledge as to why natural birth is best, but they've either assumed that everything will go well or they haven't done much preparation at all. And when they get in there and get in the moment, they're very overwhelmed. And then the doctor and the nurse has to has to try and deal with that. And thus come interventions and things to try and help this mom cope in an experience that she perhaps was not prepared for. When you are very prepared for your birthing situation, that's different. And most doctors and nurses will perceive that. This is where dialoguing comes in as well. Having a well-written birth plan is very useful. I have a blog post on that, which I will link. And I actually have a birth plan template, which you can download to go over your birth plan. A well-written birth plan is short. Simple, sweet, to the point, and it also details what you have done to prepare. And it's probably different than any birth plan template that you'll click buttons on online to have the printer spit out automatically. This is going to take you some thought, but it will be more effective, and it provides you with an excellent piece of material to dialogue with your care provider about. You know, once you're 32, 34, and certainly 36 weeks, Carry this with you to your care provider and be dialoguing with them about that. Go into your birth skilled. Other tips that can be helpful are ask for a nurse who likes to work with couples who are planning a natural birth. And if things aren't going well with the nurse that you've picked, ask for a different nurse. Usually you can do that and you should do that. The nurse who you asked to replace will probably be irritated. She may be grouchy. She's going to come back to work again another day. You're only going to have this baby one time. Ask for a different nurse if you need to. And I understand choices on doctors may be limited, but hopefully by doing your homework and picking the best one that you can find and by being really prepared yourself, things will go smoother. A final tip along those lines is wait to go to the hospital as long as you possibly can. In many good books, um, Natural Childbirth, The Bradley Way is one of them. And, and of course, in my classes, I cover it. But, you know, they, they we cover how do you know when it's time to go to the hospital. And that's something very good to understand. Because if you get to the hospital when you're 8 or 9 centimeters, they're not going to have much time to do much to you. Now, interventions with baby are another matter. And we could go on and on about that in another podcast episode. But if you're 8 to 9 centimeters and about to push and you're handling things pretty well, you're probably not going to get messed with or intervened with too terribly much. 
Okay, and I actually, that kind of covered what the next question was, how to navigate a hospital birth wanting with no interventions. And again, it's just being prepared. It's dialoguing with your care provider, and it's going in there knowing your stuff. And Dad, you are so helpful in this because sometimes birth can get tough. It can get overwhelming. But Mom, if you lose it, Dad can help you get back on track, or your mom, or your sister, or whoever your birth coach is. And I do like the term coach, because it's somebody who not only has the knowledge and loves you and supports you and tells you you're beautiful and everything because you're bringing this baby into the world, but they also know some concrete things to do to help you get back in control. They know that they can model good, calm breathing and tell you, look at me and breathe with me. And even though you can't think and you're overwhelmed, you can look into his eyes. You can watch his chest rise and you can breathe with him and you can get back in control. I have another article called what to, you know, what to do when you lose it during labor. And it talks about those things. But dad, this is where you are really critical and can be really helpful because even a mom who's handling things super wonderfully and is super calm, there may be a time when it feels overwhelming, when she feels self-doubt. And when you're there to help her get over that contraction or two or three contractions, then you can help her stay calm and in control and let the hospital situation know we've got this handled that was a tough one but it's gone it's never coming back we're three contractions closer to meeting our sweet baby she really felt the baby come down I know that things are getting close that sort of thing you know you can really be on key and you can be a great resource so dad make sure that you know your stuff uh I have Okay, I covered how do you find a doctor or midwife that you trust. I think I really covered that. And one more question. I'll get that one real quick because I've got one more here on my sheet. What are some good positions for labor and delivery when you're birthing drug-free in the hospital? No access to a tub except while I'm still at home. So again, wait to go into the hospital so that you can sit in your tub or you can use whatever you want to use uh, for positioning yourself. You can use whatever position you want. But in the hospital, I would really, 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 really advocate against the standard lithotomy position, which is where you usually see women with their feet up in stirrups pushing, or even just the semi-squatting position that women are usually in in bed when they're in labor. And a lot of home birth moms actually end up in that position too. You would want to avoid that. Good positions for a mom in a hospital. Being on a birth ball is a really great thing to do before you're pushing because the birth ball doesn't take much space up. Dad, you might look goofy carrying it up the stairs, but really who cares? And it doesn't take up much space, so it fits really well next to a hospital bed. And it gives you, mom, tons of movement during your birthing time. You can really rock and roll your hips. You can create an enormous amount of movement, which can really assist the movements that your baby's doing inside. Again, listen to that podcast about baby's experience of birth. I talk about everything that baby's doing. But that rocking of your hips, that rolling, it helps you to dissipate the energy of a contraction and it also can assist baby rotating and you spiraling is really kind of instinctive during labor and it really facilitates that in a way that is acceptable in a hospital setting. So I would definitely say look into a birth ball. Um, on your hands and knees in the bed can be effective. Standing up, uh, hanging on to a birth partner, or I like countertops. I think those work really well for a lot of students. A low countertop either in the bathroom or maybe the windowsill if you've got a window in your birthing room where you can put your hands on and just ground yourself with your hands and let your pelvis be a little bit freer. 
On the toilet is another good place. Most hospital rooms have a bathroom attached to them. So laboring on the toilet or in the shower may be an option. Those upright positions really can help facilitate baby coming down. So uh, side-lying, some moms who are tired, they find that side-lying works. But really you want to be in a more upright and active position unless you're feeling like you need a rest. Then take that side-lying position for a few contractions while you're resting and then try and get up and active with your baby. But birth ball, hands and knees in the bed, even sitting, you know, more tailor sitting um, or Indian style, crisscross applesauce, whatever you call it from wherever you are in the world. Those are all some positions that can help. And again, I just recently did a uh, blog post on labor positions, so I can link to that too. With that, we're getting really close to the 45-minute mark, which was longer than I wanted to run, but I think that this episode has been really informative, so I hope that it's been helpful to you. And if you would like to know when more podcast episodes have come out, if you would like to get regular updates from the blog, I've mentioned a lot of articles in this podcast episode, and I try and release a new comprehensive article at least once a week. So you'll get uh, notified of those articles. You'll also hear if I'm running any specials on anything like the trimester guides or on mama baby birthing. And you'll just get more general information like my handbook to planning a natural birth if you sign up for my newsletter list, which you can do by going to trustbirth101.com. That's trustbirth101.com. If you have any questions or anything, I would love to hear from you. And I would also love if you would leave a rating on iTunes or in Stitcher. Leave a written review, too. That really helps boost the rankings for the podcast, which means that more mamas, more families find the podcast. And it also makes me feel really good. So, you know, you help you and you help me and you help other families all at the same time. So it's a great thing. So leave a review. Um, Let me know what you think of the podcast. And... Yeah, sign up for the newsletter, TrustBirth101.com, and I will see you next week. I think we have a couple more Q&A episodes to go, and then we will move on to other topics. Have a blessed week.